1: Hello and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Newman, a host on this channel. This podcast features an author who does not just write about Latin American history. She was a first-hand witness of and participant in literary and revolutionary movements in the 1960s and 1970s. Her name is Margaret Randall and some listeners surely are familiar with her work as a poet, essayist, translator, and oral historian. She's had an astonishingly astonishingly prolific, half-century-long career as a writer. And her latest book is the memoir, I Never Left Home, released in March 2020 by Duke University Press. And this is the text we'll focus on during this interview. Margaret, it's a pleasure to welcome you to New Books in Latin American Studies.
0: Well, it's a pleasure for me as well, Rachel. Thank you very much for having me
1: Uh, Thank you. So we're really glad to have you joining us, um, especially at this time when virtual conversations have become so much more common and essential. So when listeners read your memoir, they'll have the chance to learn more about your grandparents and parents, as well as your thoughts about gender and class dynamics as they shaped your own early experiences. Your story began in New York, where you were born in 1936 continued in New Mexico, and as a young adult, you even spent time in Spain. Then you went back to New York and began to forge your creative identity and build connections to many artists. I'd like to begin our conversation at that point in your story when you began to contemplate a move to Mexico City um, in 1961. So what made that city appealing to you at that time? And what do you think Mexico City sort of stood for among artists and creative types in that moment?
0: Well, Rachel, um, I think that for me, um, I had had four years in New York by that time, very fruitful years, uh, very formative years for me, living among the abstract expressionists and uh, the beat poets and and Black Mountain poets um, who were active at that time. And I had a a son, my first child, um, was born in October of 1960. So I was a single mother who had chosen to have a child in New York city at a time, uh, 1960, when there were very few, um, very few facilities for, for a single mother with her child. I had to work to support him and, um, hardly ever saw him. So, um, I think going to Mexico was uh, partially in response to that. I also think that um, I sort of felt that I had gotten what I needed from New York. Um, I hoped that Mexico would be a slower, uh, more uh, a society, a, a culture with more possibilities for me to spend time with my son, uh, more possibilities for how I was going to earn a living for the two of us. And it did turn out to be that way, and it turned out, um, I turned out, uh, well, I lived in Mexico City for the next eight years, and they were extraordinary years. So um, I don't know if that answers your question.
1: Of course. Um, So maybe we can talk a little bit more about those years, Um, in the book, the center of the story, um, I would say is your work as a founder and editor of El Corno Emplumado, Uh, Bilingual International Literary Journal, along with Sergio Mondragón. And I would love if you could tell us um, something about that. Uh, And also, you know, to talk about the practical side of being a literary bridge builder. Um, Kind of, I would love to hear more about how creatives like you got by um, at that time and some of the everyday activities and social connections uh, that made this such a dynamic and fertile place for you.
0: Well, uh, Mexico City was really an extraordinary place um, at the end of the of the nineteen fifties, beginning of the sixties. I think maybe even going back um, twenty years before that, because then you had the great muralists uh, Rivera, Siqueiros. You had uh, uh, painters like Frida Kahlo. Um, you had a lot of uh, immigration from Europe um, after European fascism. Mexico has always had a um, a very open door policy to um, to refugees from different parts of the world escaping uh, situations of uh, desperation and and uh, violence. So um, Mexico had this great movement, artistic cultural movement. And although um, Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera were were gone by the time I got there. Um, some of the other muralists, Tamayo Cicados, were still alive. Uh, people like Eric Frome had come to Mexico. Um, and so um, there was still a very vibrant uh, cultural atmosphere, lots of people working in different genres. So that that was was exciting. Um, I also had a, um, an introduction to uh, a U.S. beat poet uh, Philip Lamentilla, who lived in Mexico at that time. And he had a salon going on in his apartment, um, in the center of the city. Poets would come from, um, all over. There were poets from Nicaragua, Peru, Chile, Mexico, of course, the United States. And, uh, we met, I'd say a group, maybe, uh, 10 or 12, almost every night at Philip's house. And we'd read to one another. And, um, the US Americans um, didn't know a whole lot of Spanish. Um, the Latin Americans didn't know a whole lot of English. And so, what we quickly realized we needed was some kind of a venue uh, that would translate our work back and forth. Uh, and that's how the magazine was born, El Corno Plumado. Sergio Mondragon, who was a Mexican poet, um, he and I started the magazine together. Uh, we had immense aspirations for it. I think it's the kind of project that you can only do when you're uh, 23, 24, 25 years old uh, and you think anything is possible, but it was possible. And when I look back on it now, it really is quite extraordinary that we were able to sustain this magazine, which averaged two to 300 pages an issue came out punctually every three months for eight years and um, published Before it was finished, uh, over 700 poets and writers and artists, visual artists from uh, more than 30 countries. So it was a great project. Um, It's uh, still uh, sounds in the world today. We published really some of the the most important or most exciting new work of that era. And um, I think that that was what sort of anchored me in Mexico.
1: Could you tell us a little bit more about um, how the publication was able to sustain itself financially and kind of how you went about um, doing all the logistics of getting the material, printing things, distributing it at that time? Sure. Um,
0: We, uh, of course, nobody believed we were going to do it. So the first issue was uh, difficult uh, until we really produced that first issue and people realized that we were serious. Uh, we we got money for the first issue from friends, from family. Uh, we had a little poetry reading um, to benefit the magazine. We didn't make much money at it, but um, and and we went around to uh, different uh, agencies of the Mexican government. Uh, Mexico has always been a country that has really sustained the arts, and so Bellas Artes, uh, the Ministry of Education, the Ministry of of uh, the presidency, of uh, the universities, and so forth and so on, they all are um, willing to provide money, provide advertising. uh, And that's how we uh, raised the money for the first issue and actually for all the issues um, after that. I mean, that was our main source of income always was um, uh, subsidies from the Mexican government. Uh, we did sell subscriptions as well. Uh, we sent to bookstores around the world, uh, but, you know, very few of them paid us. <laughs> so uh, we had lots of benefits and people had benefits for us in different countries. As the magazine grew, it became a sort of necessity to people in the in 1960s. Uh, people depended on it and they wanted to help it. And so uh, poetry readings were held in New York and San Francisco and in uh, Buenos Aires and um, Amsterdam and so forth. And people, you know, poets would get together and send us the proceeds from those events. So um, that's how we financed the magazine. It was always sort of touch and go. We didn't take a salary, of course. And um, basically, Sergio and I did everything together. It sort of became our life. We also fell in love. We we were married. We had two children in addition to my son, who was born in New York, and um, so we, um, you know, we did everything from solicit the manuscripts, do what translations we could do. Sometimes we formed out translations. Uh, we uh, we proofread. We we took the the copy to a small print shop. We oversaw the printing. We got down on the floor in our living room and made bundles of of copies to send around the world um so we did you know we had friends help us occasionally but
1: basically it was it was a two person job wow um well it sounds like a a great deal of work um but there's also a lot to be proud of there um so although these years in mexico were um it sounds like very exciting the the story actually in mexico also ends in an exciting Um, but maybe not in such a positive way. Um, And, you know, listeners can consult your book for the whole story, but maybe you could tell us sort of, um, you know, a a smaller version of how you eventually had to escape from Mexico. But I'd love to know what you think that this personal story um, tells us about politics in Mexico at that time. So kind of connecting your individual experience to the big picture there.
0: Well, I think that my entire book, and, and I really hoped that it would be this kind of a book, and tried very hard to make it so. Um, it's not the story of a single woman myself, but more the story of places, of moments, uh, of moments in time uh, in which uh, my life is inserted. Certainly, the book is about me. Uh, but it's uh, about where I was, what I did, and what I did with other people. I uh, had the good fortune to live in Mexico, as I say, in a very exciting time, then to move on to Cuba during the second decade of its revolution when things were still fresh and very exciting, uh, then move on to Nicaragua uh, at the beginning of the Sandinista revolution in the early 80s. And uh, so The book is one woman's story, but it's also the story of a time. It's a story of places where important social transformations were taking place. And I think it can be read on all of those levels. Uh, To get to your question about uh, how the magazine ended. Yes, I I had mentioned, of course, that uh, Mexico uh, supports the arts. And uh, that's true, but it only supports the arts. Uh, insofar as those arts don't threaten the uh, structure of of Mexican society. So that um, the Mexican government, different agencies of the government were perfectly willing to give us money for the magazine uh, while we were talking about the Vietnam War, while we were talking about the civil rights movement in the United States and so forth. But um, in 1968, uh, there were a number of student movements around the world. Uh, You probably remember that there was Columbia University, there was Paris in May of that year, and in Mexico City, there was also a student uprising, which uh, started in the summer of 1968, and uh, by the fall was uh, very threatening to the Mexican government because um, Mexico at that point was getting uh, ready to host the Summer Olympics, the 1968 Olympics. So um, the student movement, uh, which had already caused a number of deaths, um, a lot of violence, uh, the repression was was very severe. Um, the Mexican government was frightened that uh, that the, the tremendous investment that had made in in installations, sports installations, hotels, and so forth for the Olympics uh, would not pan out. People were beginning to cancel. Um, And the government got desperate. And so on the 2nd of October of that year, 1968, um, a peaceful demonstration, an enormous demonstration, was attacked by uh, military and paramilitary forces. And uh, over a thousand people were gunned down. As a result of that, the, the movement just sort of stopped. And, of course, the magazine supported the students. And I myself also uh, was involved in the movement, as was sergio and so um that presented problems for the magazine um the Our subsidies were cut off, and uh that was virtually the end of the magazine um, the following year in sixty nine we were all sort of battered and uh those of us who had survived and uh, we were preparing to commemorate the first anniversary of uh, our movement and that is when I personally suffered a repression. Uh paramilitary uh forces came to my house, stole my passport, and so forth. So at that point I was forced underground. I had uh, four children by that time. Um Say Hugh and I had separated and I was living with um a US American poet, Robert Cohen, and we'd had a daughter who was just three months old at that time. So it was a very precarious time for uh, our family and for me. Um, when the repression hit, uh, I was also ill in bed. Uh, my daughter was three months old. Uh, the older kids were uh, between uh, eight and four. And for a while, we just hid in different parts of vast Mexico City but it became very difficult to hide with, um, with four children. So we uh, finally decided to send the children to Cuba. Cuba was uh, taking in children from all over the world at that point, um, children whose parents were uh, fighting on the front lines in various countries, uh, children whose parents had been killed or were in prison. And so they took our children while I uh, tried to find a way out of Mexico. And indeed, one of the most interesting chapters, I think, or exciting chapters in the book is the one I call Escape, uh, where I describe how I eventually escaped from Mexico and managed to uh, get to Cuba, uh, catch up with my children after about three months. Uh, I won't tell the whole story because I want people to, to read the book but uh, I will just say that uh, that 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 escape via Czechoslovakia from Mexico to Czechoslovakia and to Cuba was um, was uh, pretty nerve wracking, but ultimately successful. And so, in October uh, of '69, I was able to rejoin my children uh, in Cuba, and we lived there for the for the next eleven years.
1: So um, maybe moving forward to um, that period of your life in Cuba, um, what I found really interesting is that you say you've you know you've written about this time um, before in, in other books, uh, but that it's it's a good moment to sort of revisit it and you note that some of your ideas about the Cuban Revolution and sort of um, where it was in that moment have also changed over time. So could you just sort of recreate for us how you viewed? the revolutionary project during the time when you actually lived in Cuba, and then maybe something about how your ideas have changed since then.
0: Surely, um, well, when I got to Cuba, of course, I was uh, extremely grateful to the Cuban government, to the revolution, for having taken my children in and, um, and treating them so sensitively and wonderfully until I could get there. Uh, and I was incredibly impressed with um, the revolution as a whole. I had been to Cuba at that point twice before, um, just on, on brief visits uh, once to a meeting of poets in 67, and then to a meeting of intellectuals, a large meeting of intellectuals in 69. Uh, but I, uh, and, and it was the first time I had ever lived in a socialist country. And so I was extremely interested in what that meant in terms of changing people's lives. I, had, I was a recently, um, uh, I should say, I, I recently um, had found feminism too, uh, had discovered feminism. And so it was particularly important to me to um, try to understand the difference that the revolution had made or not made in women's lives. So I dedicated the next several years to interviewing women, to writing about women in Cuba, to asking them how the revolution had changed or not changed their lives, and of course, having four children was also a way of uh, understanding um, the revolution from the viewpoint of my children from their educations and so forth um, and then I worked you know like like anybody else um, at a job in a publishing house, and so I had that that experience as well um, the in, I think the Cuban revolution during its second decade was uh, a particularly marvelous place. I refer to those years as the revolution's glory years, because uh, although there were problems, there there was always a sense that we would solve those problems together. And um, one wasn't aware of of the corruption that came later, of some of the um, real structural problems that Cuba has had, that the revolution has had. I should say that I still am a great supporter of the, of the Cuban revolution, but I'm more critical uh, than I was at that time. And so, although I had already written a book in 2009, uh, just about my experiences in Cuba, I had quite a bit more to say uh, when I, when I started writing the Cuban chapter in this book. And uh, I've also been to Cuba um, once, twice, sometimes even three times a year over the past several years. So I have a sort of ongoing contact with the country, with my friends there, with what's happening. And so I think that um, as someone who lived there for eleven years and then continues to visit and continues to be alert to the changes, both both negative and positive, um, I was in a unique position to to add to what I had written previously.
1: Um, I also really enjoyed the part of the chapter where you talk about learning photography in Cuba. Um, and I really also appreciated all of the photographs throughout the book that you that you took. Um, could you tell us something about that?
0: Yeah, well I, I came to photography late. Uh I was in my my forties, mid forties when I decided to apprentice to a cub a wonderful Cuban photographer named Ramon uh Martinez Grandal. We referred to him as just as Grandal, uh, he took me on, he uh uh let me apprentice to him and he taught me um everything he knew I guess and uh I I I was uh working, just beginning to learn photography. I think I was motivated by two things. One, um I was looking for a language um that would be sort of universal. You know, I I write poetry in English. Um, I write in English, although I have written uh, oral history books and some essays in Spanish. Uh, I mostly write in English. And um, so uh, my own children, some of them couldn't really read what I was writing. So I was looking for a language and photography became that language, the language of images. Uh, But I was also working at that time for a cultural magazine at Cuba's Ministry of Culture called Revolución y Cultura, And I would be sent out on these um, jobs to do a story about a poetry festival or um, some kind of an event, a theater festival or whatever, um, in some city uh, on the island. And they would send a photographer with me. And I wasn't always thrilled at the images that the photographer uh, captured. So I sort of had this urge to to do my own photography. And I, I think those were the two things that motivated me to learn. I did move on to Nicaragua um, after having only spent maybe three, four months with Grandal uh, learning photography. So um, when I got to Nicaragua, of course, I had to uh, teach myself a lot. Uh, the learning process hadn't ended by by any means. And And when I talk about the learning process in terms of photography, Uh, We couldn't go to a to a photo store and and buy neat little yellow packets of powder that we could make into developer and fixer and so forth. We had to mix our own chemicals. Uh, We had to go to compound pharmacies to get the uh, ingredients and so forth. So it it was a whole other experience than I think someone has, for example, in the United States who um, is learning photography.
1: Yeah, maybe a bit more artisanal, sounds like. Um, very much so. <laughs> <laughs> well, since you've mentioned um, Nicaragua, maybe we could um, move forward to that part of your life. Um, and this is a chapter that I think begins with, um, you know, uh, great hope, maybe optimism, and and then ends kind of on a very painful note. Um, could you tell us more about your role as a cultural worker in Nicaragua and what your experiences there showed you about you know, sort of who the Sandinistas were um, once they came to power?
0: Yes, I met a great many of the Sandinistas in Cuba um, just uh, prior to their coming to victory in their country. Um, I had written a book in 1975, where it was published in 75, um, uh, an oral history of a Sandinista woman and so I got to know um, a number of Sandinistas of the early Sandinistas and some of them became close friends. And and then Ernesto Cardenal, who recently died, the great Nicaraguan poet, uh, I had known him since um, our time in Mexico. He was one of the poets uh, who would come to Philip Lamentia's apartment and and who was uh, involved in the beginnings of, of the magazine. By the time um, the the... Uh, Sandinistas won, he had become the first minister of culture. And one of the first things he did was invite me to Nicaragua to uh, write a book about Nicaraguan women. I had uh, published several books about Cuban women at that point, and he wanted me to interview Nicaraguan women and and, uh, explore what that experience had been like uh, for them. So I did that. I went uh very soon after the victory the victory was in July of 79 and i got there in september of that year and uh, spent about 3 months uh traveling the country interviewing women uh brought all my material back to cuba spent most of uh 1980 in cuba writing the book which turned out to be sandina's daughters actually one of my books that has been that has had uh most success or or at least uh most most copies in print and um and then i decided that i wanted to return to nicaragua to live there for a while uh the 20 years that separates the cuban revolution and the nicaraguan revolution um were important years in terms of feminism in terms of uh the changes within the catholic church um liberation theology and so forth, a lot had happened in the world uh, in those 20 years, such that um, the experience in Nicaragua was quite different from the experience in Cuba. And I was eager to get in on the ground floor of a revolutionary experiment and um, try to understand what that was about. So I moved to Nicaragua at the end of 1980, lived there for four years. And... um, did uh, quite a few exciting things. I worked for a year in the Ministry of Culture, and then I went on to work in Nicaraguan media, which was a particularly interesting job because at that point the Sandinistas were trying to uh, change the the texture of media, radio, TV, and print media in the country, change the values, um, and so forth. So that was a very interesting experience, trying to figure out with other people how that could be done. Um, I think that um, those years were extraordinary, uh, mainly because uh, the Nicaraguan revolution was new, it was, um, uh, it was transparent, uh, very, very exciting things were happening. I left um, at the beginning of 84 to come back to this country. And um, as you know, um, Nicaragua went through several um, governmental changes since then. The uh, right uh, won at the polls in 1990, so the Sandinistas were out of power then, and then a series of right-wing governments took over. And uh, finally, uh, the Sandinistas, at least the Sandinistas in name, uh, returned to power, and today you have uh, a government in Nicaragua which is um which is Sandinista in name, but um very, very far from what that that movement was like when I lived there in the early eighties uh It's become totally corrupted um the president Daniel Ortega and his vice president who's also his wife uh Gosario Murillo, have sort of um taken the country over as their own personal fiefdom. And, um, especially in the last two years, um, there's been a protest movement, a, a popular protest protest movement. Many people have been killed, uh, many imprisoned and exiled. And, um, the country is really in the grips now of, of what I would call a dictatorship. So it is a sad, a sad moment for Nicaragua, very sad. And, uh, perhaps especially for those of us who remember what it was like in the early 80s.
1: Could you actually um, tell us a little bit more about sort of everyday life and the mood on the streets in those early days of the revolution? And I would also be curious to hear about um, similarities and differences between, you know, sort of everyday getting by in Cuba versus Nicaragua.
0: Well, the... the the experience in both countries, the day-to-day experience, was very hands-on. Uh, I think that's the the term that best describes it. I mean, I can remember in Cuba, for example, uh, we all had rationing so that uh, so that you know everyone would get enough food, but but um, not more than what there was. And I can remember going out on on uh, Friday afternoon after work and and picking potatoes in in the fields around Havana. And then Monday morning, seeing those potatoes show up in our grocery store. So that kind of thing where cause and effect is very palpable. And um, there's a problem, there's a shortage, there's a uh, something that needs fixing and it gets fixed. You know, people put their heads together. There were um, mechanisms uh, through which uh, people could really shape their lives. And, uh, that was true in Nicaragua, too, in those early years. Um, it was different. Um, the, As I say, uh, the Cuban Revolution, of course, was run by the Cuban Communist Party, which was part of the international communist movement. Um, the uh, Nicaraguan Revolution, the Sandinista Revolution, was not a communist revolution, um, and the Sandinista Party was not a communist party. So it was more, I would say, a nationalist party, uh, with vestiges of socialism and so forth. So, um, you know, the, there were differences of, of of that type. There were also differences for women, enormous differences, because as I say, uh, between 1959 when the Cuban Revolution came to power and 1979 when the Nicaraguan Revolution came to power, um, those 20 years throughout the explosion of uh, the second wo- uh, wave of feminism internationally. And so, whereas... The word feminist was a sort of dirty word in Cuba uh, during the years that I lived there. Um, feminists were seen as people who who would who were too extreme, who would divide the working class, etc. In Nicaragua, um, feminists were running uh, huge uh, aspects of of the country. So, um, so you know, there were those differences, and and I think another difference that's interesting is that in Cuba. Uh, all indigenous life had been wiped out. Oh, centuries before. Um, but in Nicaragua, there was a tremendous indigenous presence. There still is on the Atlantic coast: Miskito people and Suma people and Grama people. So, um, so that also uh, had its import and, and effect on the revolution. Uh, so uh, there were lots of differences, uh, both stemming from time, the the two different uh, periods of time, and also from the cultures and histories of of the two countries.
1: Um, Could you also say something about, uh, you mentioned before seeing um, the Cuban revolution sort of through your children's eyes, and I think some of your children went with you to Nicaragua as well. Um, what, What were you observing actually through their experiences, I don't know, through education or their own sort of social worlds that they created? In Nicaragua, you mean? Uh, Yeah, in both countries. Well, in
0: Cuba, uh, they went to uh, very well-defined schools. Uh, By the time we got to Cuba, um, Cuba was well on the way to developing an education system that worked for them. Uh, My three older kids were uh, becados, which means that they uh, were in school from uh, from Sunday night to uh, Friday afternoon. They only came home on weekends. And my youngest was in daycare. She came home every day. Um, In Nicaragua, um, everything was more in flux. And uh, my youngest, who at that point was 10 years old, when I moved to to Nicaragua, I gave all my kids the option to come with me or to stay in Cuba, except for Ana. I didn't give her the option because she was only 10. So she came with me. Um, And my next youngest who was just, she had one more year of, um, of middle school uh, at that point, And then she joined us in, in Nicaragua a year later. So um, essentially my, my two youngest uh, daughters um, accompanied me in Nicaragua. And um, at first they went to school, uh, you know, they went to school with classmates of their age and so forth. But very quickly the Contra War heated up and uh, the schools were closed for uh, periods of time. Um, young people joined the militia. Um, so a lot of my daughter's experiences in, in Nicaragua weren't so much in the classroom as they were in the militia, uh, in, in, in brigades of young people um, participating in the defense of the country and of course, that was um, quite quite dramatic for kids who had come from uh, Cuba, which by that time was a very safe and, and uh, solid society, to a place like Nicaragua, where um, we were at war. And um, so I think their experience was very, very different in Nicaragua, but also uh, informs their lives. I mean, their in their fifties today. And I think that both the Cuban experience and the Nicaraguan experience that the youngest two had, um, is very present in the way they're raising their own children and grandchildren.
1: Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I would love to ask you more as well about your work as an oral historian. Um, I think oral history is a well-known, um, methodology and, and genre even now, uh, but I don't think that was necessarily the case when you were doing some of your early work in that area. So could you tell us a little bit more about how you got into that field and and a little bit about the nuts and bolts of how you practiced it in a time um, you know, when recording was uh, a little bit more technologically complex?
0: Absolutely. Yes, you're right. I got into it. Um not even knowing what it was really. I mean, the last year that I lived in Mexico, uh, as I mentioned before, I uh, discovered feminism. Uh, It was 1969, 1970. um, The first feminist uh, texts were coming from the United States and from France and they excited me. And so um, when I moved to Cuba, I uh, was very interested, as I said before, in how uh, the revolution had affected women's lives in particular, how it had changed their lives or perhaps not changed their lives enough. Um, the only way I knew how to, um, to to answer that question for myself was to ask the women. So I wasn't really aware that I was doing something called oral history, but I designed a project. I worked for a small publishing house in Cuba, and I designed a project uh, in which I would go out, I would travel the country I would interview women about their lives and ask them those questions. And the project was approved. Uh, nobody had done a book at that point on Cuban women. Uh, so I was fortunately the first. And I spent two years traveling the country, uh, speaking with women, recording, as you say, <laughs> on, very, uh, on those clunky old um, tape recorders that we used in those days and then the endless uh, work of transcribing, which just has to be one of the most tedious jobs in the world. Um, And uh, so my first book about Cuban women, which was called Cuban Women Now, came out in, I think it was 72 in Cuba and 74. uh, It came out in English in Canada. And uh, then through having done that book, I realized that I wasn't alone. I wasn't the only person in the world asking questions of other people, interviewing them, and and creating a book from that material. Uh, There was a movement uh, and it was called testimonial in Spanish or oral history. There were other people doing it. People were discussing the ethics of oral history, um, the technical aspects and so forth. And, um, I began uh, to participate in that global conversation. And so I learned um, in a hands-on way uh, through my own work, but I also learned through discussions with other people who were doing similar things. And um, at one point, I guess I realized I was doing oral history.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I'm sure many people are very glad that you, um, that you did that work. Um, It's an invaluable source. Um, so I wanted to ask, I've been thinking a bit about your book in terms of how I might use it, um, in the classroom in a college Latin American history class. Um, and something I could imagine students asking would be about memory and the ways that our narratives of our own lives change as we move through time. So I would love to hear about how you sort of researched your own story, Um, you know, how you were able to access all the memories that you would need to write this book and whether you used um, other sources on your own life, like, um, you know, letters or other written material or your photographs to kind of help you build this text.
0: That's really an interesting question, Rachel. I think, uh, when one writes a memoir um, at whatever age, but especially at my age, uh, memory just becomes the the issue. Uh, we all think that, or perhaps most of us think that we can remember uh, our lives fairly well. And I would challenge that. I keep a, a journal. I've kept a journal since 1967, so I do have thousands and thousands of of pages of of journal, which is helpful. But when I started writing this book, um, as I say, I started with the chapter about New York. That was the first chapter I, I wrote. And then I moved backwards and forwards from there. Um, I just sat down to write out of my memory. And at a certain point, I, um, I wrote a letter, an email to a a very dear friend who lives in Italy in Spoleto. And, uh, um, I've often shared my work with him and, uh, So he, um, I told him I was writing a memoir and uh, we've known each other for many, many years since the early 80s. And he wrote back and he said, well, you know, 20 years ago, you sent me uh, a memoir that you'd written. Um, It's 607 pages and I have a copy and I'm sure you have a copy. And I was absolutely stunned because uh, I didn't have a copy, but what's more, I didn't have any memory that I had written that book. So he sent me a copy. Uh, he sent me all six hundred and seven pages, and I read them. And, and I, I was really uh, I found it to be a kind of astonishing experience. Um, I recognized the book as mine. I was very glad it had never been published. I didn't like uh, the what I had prioritized in that book. It was very much about myself, uh, and I wanted to do something as I say much more about time, and place, uh, which I think this book is. Uh, but it was interesting to me also how um, some of the things that I was writing about uh, for the present book, for the current book, um, were uh, I, I remembered them differently from the way I had remembered them 20 years earlier. So uh, reading that 20 years early earlier book or manuscript did help in that respect just it helped me situate people and places, um, in, uh, a more reliable order. Uh, but I think that memory is subjective, you know, and I think it is for, uh, everybody. And for every memorist, um, you have to decide what you want to, uh, to say and how you want to say it. And, um, you have to deal with how you remember that. So, um, sometimes it's important, I guess, to, um, to capture the essence of a time and a place, and and worry less about the exact date that something happened, or uh, or who may have been at a particular event. Um, so I think that one searches for truth in memory more in its essence, um, in its meaning, than perhaps in its details.
1: That's that's really interesting. Um... And I, I guess I'll just say on behalf of other 20th century historians out there, I am sure that I'm not the only person who would be very curious about those journals and that earlier memoir. So I hope you've got them safe somewhere um, for future historians they use. Are,
0: <laughs> they are safe. They're uh, at the University of New Mexico um, Center for, Southeast, uh, for uh, Southwest Research, uh, Search. but the I should say that the journal, all my papers are there, but the journals have a 30-year hold on them. So uh, I will be long gone by the time anyone gets to look at the journals.
1: Yes. Um, So for a final question, as we sort of move toward the end of this, I would love to hear what you're up to these days um, and whether you have any uh, new writing projects that we might keep an eye out for. I do I have several <coughs> excuse
0: me, I have several. Um, I have a book coming out on the 15th of September from New uh, Village Press in New York. It's called "My Life in a Hundred Objects." In some ways, I guess it's a companion book to to the memoir. Um, it's a book uh, literally of a hundred objects. I photograph each one of them, and they'll be in full color in the book, and then I've written a text for each one. So they range from uh the the fake passport that I bought to try to get out of Mexico in 69 to um a four thousand year old uh clay head that um, comes from one of the uh, ruins in Mexico uh to my first typewriter uh, my first camera uh, my father's metronome my father was a cellist uh so. Objects like those. Um, I think it's going to be a beautiful book, beautiful um, visually as well as I hope interesting to read. So that's coming out in September, my life in in 100 objects. And then um, I'm working on a book of short essays at the moment. It's called Thinking About Thinking. Um, I don't have a publisher for it yet. So just sort of slowly working along on that. Uh, I'm also working on a a collection of poems. This uh, coronavirus, this crisis that we're all in, um, has really, um, of course, it's kept me at home, as it has so many other people, and uh, it has um, produced a, a torrent of poetry in me. I've been writing a poem, sometimes two or three or four a day. I've been posting them on my Facebook page, and People have been commenting on them and so I have uh, quite a collection of those poems at this point and they will come out in January from Wings Press. Um, at the moment I'm calling that book uh, Starfish on a Beach, the Pandemic Poems, but that may not end up being its title, we'll see. So I'm, I'm always involved in two or three writing projects and now is no exception to that. And I'm grateful for them because Um, It's really how I'm keeping sane these days.
1: Well, that's wonderful and how fortunate for all of us that we have all of those things to look forward to um, over the next year or so. Uh, Margaret, it's been a great pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you so much for your time.
0: Yes, thank you, Rachel.